People are strange. People get better. People. People who need people. don't think it's possible to listen to that music and not swing your hips and throw your hands up in the air and just kind of smile. That, of course, is the Austin Powers theme written by our own George S. Clinton. My guest for this edition, uh, this latest edition of People with Barry, a podcast about some of the remarkable people that I've had the good fortune enough to meet and interview and in some cases become friends with, and George certainly fits all of those descriptions. A lot of people don't know that he's from here. George went to Brainerd, graduated in 1965. Very proud of that fact. His mother still lives here. He's an active member of the Chattanooga Symphony and Opera Board, uh, has done several uh, collaborations with them, and has a new one. He has written a piece uh, with Holly Mulcahy, the violinist and concert master with the symphony and opera, a concerto for violin. We talk about that. We talk about his days at Brainerd. We talk about his career, how he got into doing soundtracks. It's not something that he ever um, imagined himself doing. It was a chance meeting with uh, Cheech and Chong, of all things, uh, he did two film scores for them. We talk about how that happened. We talk about the importance of the arts. We talk about the importance of being willing to try anything. Uh, I think that's probably the theme for this particular episode. Among George's credits include Mortal Kombat, Wild Things. Uh, he did two Austin Powers films, The Spy Who Shagged Me and Goldmember. He did The Santa Claus 2 and 3 Tooth Fairy, Big Mama's House 2, and Bury Me at Wounded Knee, which was a beautiful score uh, about a terrible tragedy in our history. Uh, but George, uh, the score for that is truly remarkable. So, But first of all, I wanted to say, I'm very proud to say that we are doing this recording in the brand new 1921 Society Lounge uh, in the upper mezzanine area of the Chattanooga Tivoli Theater. The folks there are kind enough to have offered it to me uh, to do these podcasts, and I'm very proud of that fact. So we are recording in this beautiful new space, and you will hear, I should mention, you'll hear about 10 minutes in, uh, we actually, while we, were, while we were recording, the crew was setting up for the Jimi Hendrix Experience concert, which was later that night, an incredible show. Uh, but you'll hear some of that in the background, so I apologize for that that sound intrusion in the podcast, but it's I don't think it's too bad, and it doesn't last for very, very long. So anyway, here is my interview with George S. Clinton, and I hope you will enjoy it, and thank you very much. In the 60s. Brainerd High School, the year I graduated was 65. 
And um, I think it had either just been desegregated that year or the year before, I mean, or the year after. Uh, at that time, we were the Brainerd Rebels, our fight song was Dixie, and our flag was a Confederate flag. So times have changed. Wow. And, uh, and, and the school itself had a really strong uh, music program. Um, there was a guy named Bill Henson, a uh, band director that I owe a lot to because he, when I said I want to write something for the stage band, but I don't know how, but I know what I want it to sound like, he sat down with me and helped me figure out how to write for saxophones and, you know, just wow. really one of these guys that really, uh, really helped me. And in fact, he sat in on trombone at um, the Coat of Arms, which was one of the nightclubs in Chattanooga right. at the time. And I had a, a trio that would play there, and uh, sometimes he'd come and bring his trombone That's <laughs> and really sit cool. in with us. So he who was, was great. Who was in the trio? Uh, me, Paul Britt, who uh, died in a car accident while we were in college. Oh. And then, um, gosh, who was the drummer? Forgotten. But prior to that, I was in a band called the Velveteens. That's what I, yeah. And uh, Bill Phillips is still around. He played guitar. And um, Scott Sullivan's Scott. not with us anymore, but he sang. Uh, I, was just, and, I was just telling the manager here about Sully. Yeah. The reason I asked and wanted to start with Brainerd is I, I, I've done my job now 30-something years. Hmm. And I can't count on both hands and both feet the number of Brainerd and or City High School graduates that are in the entertainment arts world hmm. uh, doing great things. Hmm. Uh, yourself, obviously. Leslie Jordan comes sure. to mind. Rex Knowles. Yeah, and Rex Sherry and Sherry. Landon. Sherry and I were, uh, were uh, we tried dating, but that was no good early on in junior high school. We went to Brainerd Junior together, too. And so we became friends, uh, been lifelong friends ever since. Yeah. It's, it's amazing the amount of talent yeah. that came out of there. John Zachary, yeah. who does set design work, set building in mm -hmm. Hollywood. There was a feeling there because it was a relatively new school. I mean, the senior class appeared when it, when it was needed. They started the school right. without a senior class, right. and then as the class came up through, the senior class uh, became available. I think that was a year before I went there. But they had young teachers. They had a guy named George Mathis, I think, was principal then, who, uh, I think that's who was principal then. Anyway, you, you had, and the sports, you know, the sports side was equally as uh, uh, energetic and, and full of promise, and uh, the same thing with the music. Everything was possible, you know, and, uh, and so that's what made it so much fun. I was in marching band, I was in choir, a guy named uh, Robert Crane was, uh, Bob Crane was the director of the choir, and, you know, he was just right there, uh, ready to, I think Sher Sherry and I appeared in two or three musicals together. I was the Ten Woodman, and she was the uh, Scarecrow in The wow. Wizard of Oz, and, you know, it, it, we always had a musical that was always the band, and... Uh, stage band and you know lots of stuff happening and I just feel so bad for a lot of the um, the kids in schools nowadays where those programs don't even exist. Right. Gary Janney's another name. Yeah, exactly. Gary, uh, Brainerd guy that does. You've heard his voice, whether you know it or not. Yeah, yeah he does exactly. all kinds of commercial work. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's. I, I like the way you said that. Anything is possible. That's yeah. that. That's the takeaway that I've got from talking with everybody. Yeah, that's, uh, that was the time, I think, that was the era we were, you know, uh, sons and daughters, we were the baby boom generation, and we were in high school now, you know, so there's this whole sense of maturity coming forth and energy coming forth with uh, the sons and daughters of the post-war generation, yeah. and uh, along with us, you know, we brought this, one of the things that had never existed before was television, mm -hmm. and so there was this whole world being created for us on television. Right. You know, shows especially for kids. Right. And I don't know, I was reading somewhere, our generation was the first one where the grown-ups wanted to be like us. Instead of us wanting to dress like them and mature like they were, they wanted to be suddenly dress like we were dressing and become like we were. I mean, not everybody. No, but no, I get it. Socially, it was a little bit of an inversion. Absolutely, and Brainerd uh, was sort of the new frontier, really. It was it? the it, outer yeah. outer limits of downtown. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. I grew right. up on on Tally Road. Uh, yeah, I used to ride my bike through the junior high school and all that, so I'm familiar. After Brainerd, you ended up MTSU, right? Yeah, 
I went up to MTSU. You know, uh, when we, our daughter uh, is uh, long since graduated from college, but when we were looking for colleges, that's such a big deal now, you know? For me, it was like, oh, MTSU is close to Nashville. And my friend Paul Brett goes there, okay, that sounds good. You know, I never investigated any other places that I might go. So it's like the Jimi Hendrix experience is kicking up. Yeah, I was gonna say, if you can hear that, the, uh, the Hendrix experience is setting up downstairs on the stage, so. We might hear a little bit of rumbling with a lot <laughs> of guitars. Do, if, if they do, uh, what was it, uh, Watchtower, I may start singing along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you'll hear the foot tapping. Mm -hmm. But you ended up at MTSU, which... MTSU, uh, and uh, one of the reasons I went there was I was already writing songs. It was close to Nashville, and I knew I wanted to try to see what I could do there. I'd been writing songs since high school. And um, so, uh, in fact, my first recording ever was done because this guy named Kipper and I had a, a folk duo in high school named George and Kipper. And so we entered the J.C. Hootenanny. And I had written these, quote, folk songs, you know, and we, we won. And as part of our prize, we got to go down to Peanuts Faircloth's yeah. recording studio. Wow. And Peanuts is a little person. Yeah. And, uh, and I walk into um, the studio was down on Alpha Ninth Street somewhere, and there were all these egg crates, you know, stapled to the wall to keep the sound in. And there, standing on a stool, adjusting a microphone, was Peanuts. Wow! And he goes, "I'll be right with you." Wow. <laughs> I said to my my friend uh, Kipper at that time, "This is the business for me, man." <laughs> <laughs> You're there to sing in a can. That's right. That's pretty great. Um, so anyway, MTSU. Uh, I was in the marching band there in the choir, and uh, what, like I said, was close to Nashville, and I got my first gig in Nashville writing for Tree Music at the time. Was doing uh, session work there too, while I was getting a degree in, in drama, as uh, music as well as drama, I uh, also majored in drama. So again, here was a bunch of professors who were saying, yeah, yeah. When, I, when I told uh, Joe Smith, who was the uh, band director up there, that I wanted to do a stage band arrangement of the Sgt. Pepper's album from beginning to end and, pre and, and present it in concert, his response was, go for it. Wow. You know, so. Yeah. I had a professor like that. Yeah. It's, it means a lot. It, it means, does. It does. We, we were, uh, I was broadcast journalism and the school at UTC was brand new, so they had all this equipment and we, you know, can we take it home one for the weekend? Wow. Sure. That's Have fantastic. Because he was glad to see it being used. Yeah. So anyway, it was good, you know, again, uh, mentors. Uh, one of the things that I think I've carried with me is I like doing that for young people now. I like paying it forward because it was paid forward to me by these people that I just mentioned. And I guess the first person to do that was my mother. She was an organist at the Southern Baptist Church and uh, taught me how to play the piano, you know, and was a really a, a real has always, well, she gave me the gift of music. It's a gift. You pass it on. Right. I passed it on to my daughter, you know, who's got right, her, right. her career happening in New York right now. So um, I think, you know, there are, there are various people you meet in your life, but if you meet somebody that sees your potential, and to me, the best teachers are stewards of dreams. We bring them their dreams and they help us grow those dreams. They don't stomp on them, they don't weed them out for you and tell you which one's the best one for you. Right. They help you nurture and, and find the one that you, know, that you should be pursuing. Did you know at the time, uh, or did you have a sense that you were gonna be more of a singer, a songwriter, drama, theater? Was there a, were you narrow, was the path narrow then or was it wide open? It was, Anything's possible. <laughs> it was the That's unusual, I would think. Well, uh, I, I finally had to narrow it down eventually because uh, I didn't want to go into acting. Uh, I had done some acting. I was actually on Broadway for a brief moment in a, a show called Pump Boys and, and yeah. Dinettes. I took over for uh, one of the characters there and then toured uh, with it for a while. But other than summer stock and you know little things like that and some appearances in the movies I've scored uh, just little little cameos I've never pursued that as a as a career I enjoy doing it but music has always been my life really so um, it was a no-brainer for me as to which one to pursue so then you went to California yep which is 
second part of that same question. You went out there to be in a band, right? Wasn't that your... Yeah, I, I had, um, you know, the Vietnamese War was going on, and uh, I, you know, it was just a matter of time till I got called up, I guess. So I decided um, I would go to L.A. rather than trying to continue with my education. I could have, you know, stayed out just by going to master's school or whatever, but I decided to go to L.A. and, and just, you know, see what, what would happen. And the reason I decided to do that, because... Um, I had gone to the Atlanta Pop Festival, for the, which was the first festival right before Woodstock. It was in Atlanta, 1969, and it was right before the Woodstock Festival. Okay. And um, a lot of the same bands that were going to Woodstock went to that festival first. And so I was there, and I was just really into the whole scene. And I saw Joe, Joe Cocker and the Grease Band perform with a little help from my friends. And I had this epiphany, man. I thought... I'm going to L.A. I've got to go be part of this scene. And I knew that, you know, I would... Uh, so the next weekend, I was on an airplane with a guitar and a suitcase, and I found my friend Wayne Berry, who uh, lives in Nashville now, but he and I formed a band together and did a couple of albums. And so you weren't going out there to score films? No, no, I had never intended to score films. I. Like I say, I have a degree in music, so I know how to orchestrate and write for orchestra and all that. But uh, I went out there to be part of that scene and right. write songs and be a recording artist and right. you know see how far I could go with that. I did uh, a career day at the high school where I went today, just this morning, and so it's it's interesting to hear, you know, to talk to these sophomores yeah. about how their lives are going to change. I know. And you don't have to, you don't need to know the path. And then here we are, yeah. you know, to see how yours changed. Exactly. So you went, you went out there to be in a band, to be part of the scene. And then how long were you out there before the, the teaching Movie? job thing came up? It was 10 years. I went oh, out okay. there, um, yeah, 69. It'll be 50, God, 50 years to September. <laughs> September 1st. It'll be 50 years. Woo! Wow. So in that fast. 10 years, you weren't still not doing film scores. No, I was doing, uh, I had become a songwriter for Warner Brothers, a staff writer, and uh, was lucky enough to have some pretty big uh, covers, uh, Michael Jackson, Joe Cocker, and um, everybody from uh, Bobby Darren to Johnny Mathis to Three Dog Night, you know, just, I'd become a staff writer. And it was kind of cool because there was only four or five of us at that time. And every two weeks, we would meet with the song guys there, and they would give us these reports on the singers that were coming up with albums that needed songs. And this is the kind of song the producer was looking for. And so we would either pitch songs that we already had, or we'd go home and we would write songs in that style for that particular artist. And um, that became a very interesting thing to do because you got to write songs in different styles, R&B or hard rock or you know whatever it happened to be. But um, that lasted maybe six years, and in the meantime, I did uh, two albums uh, with one band, and then my own solo album, and then another album uh, with a, a second band with Wayne Berry. So I wound up doing four albums and uh, being a songwriter for those ten years. And whether you knew it or not, you were learning to write exactly for what might come later, right? Well, see, that's Again, it, that's, isn't it? Yeah. And when you talk to these sophomores, they right. don't realize that. Right, you know, exactly. they don't. They don't realize the same thing with me in talking to com, uh, film composing students. You know, they, they think they see their, their path as a straight shot from where they are to where they want to be, and that ain't it. And sometimes the best thing you can do is fall in love with plan B for a while because that's going to get you back on to where you need to be. Well, the other thing I try to tell them is if you think you see that straight path, there are a lot of other roads and doors mm. and whatever, you know, metaphors you want to think of. Like, like if you think you want to be a quarterback and you're five foot seven, you're yeah. probably not going to be a quarterback. Right. But there are things you can do in sports, in there you football. Go. Yeah. Um, I can't play the radio. My brothers all play. <laughs> I have no musical talent, but I love music so much, that's what I write about. There you go. I mean, so that's, that's my... 
message, I guess. Well, that's a great message, and, and you don't realize that. In fact, you know, a dream is a great thing. It's a, it's a magnet. You throw it out there, you're drawn towards it. But if you never reach it, does that mean you failed? No. Right. No, the journey, it's about the journey towards it. It's not, it's not about the achievement of it. Straight line, we're, in our conversation, we're more or less chronologically. I want to tell people listening, the reason we're here, you have written a concerto that is going to be premiered here yeah. at Tivoli with our own Chattanooga Symphony Opera and our own uh, Holly Mulcahy. Yeah. Uh, is going to be performing. We're going to talk about that in depth, but just I want to get, get to there a little bit. So <laughs> how, for people, and I, and I will say this in the beginning of the podcast, some of your, your credits, but Mortal Kombat, uh, Austin Powers, mm -hmm. Bury Me at Wounded Knee is a beautiful mm -hmm. piece. Thanks. Um, but it was that Cheech and Chong movie of yeah. thing, right, that yeah. started it all. Well, you never know, right? Like right. you're saying, you just don't know which doors are going to come and, and when. And uh, they had seen me, a band, my band, at a, uh, the last band I had at a club, and um, came backstage and said, hey, you want to do some music for a movie? You know, their producer was somebody that I had met before who knew about my music, and so I guess he had brought them down. And so that's how it started. I said, sure, sounds good to me. And uh, so that's, uh, that was my first film score, was Still Smoking, which is uh, one of their okay. early films. Yeah, I was thinking it was Corsican was the first Sec one. That was the second one. The two of them. Wow. Yeah. yeah, well the first one was, you know, Still Smoking. The second one came about because Chong calls me, and, hey Clinton, this is Chong, man, we're in Paris, you know, Ryan Pictures has rented us a chateau, we're doing this crazy Corsican Brothers movie, you want to come over? I said, I said, okay. So anyway, they flew me over, and I was composer in residence for this crazy movie. Nice. And uh, I, what I remember of that summer in Paris, that's <laughs> wonderful. You did um, a couple of film, film composing symposiums yeah. here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got to see, I got to uh, watch one of them and see your process. Mm. Can't imagine what that process was like for that film <laughs> compared to how you work now. Probably not the same. No, definitely not the same. Though <laughs> we learn a lot, and we lose a lot of tolerance for certain substances. So, so I think it's probably a lot clearer though. How, how much? I wonder how much was uh, forgotten that never made it to paper or, or tape or whatever. That's yeah. I I don't want to think about that. <laughs> So that, yeah, so I, I would assume then, after at least the second one, you found you had a knack for this. I did. I, did. I had a knack for it. My mistake was thinking that because I'd done two Cheech and Chong movies, that there was going to be a path beaten to my door mm -hmm. for me to do films, and that ain't the way it works. You know, you, you have to continue networking. You have to continue promoting yourself, and that's one of the things a lot of artists don't realize is how big a part of being successful as an artist that turns out to be. The networking, the self-promotion, the putting yourself out there. Most artists are too shy to do that and feel comfortable about doing it. And I had to break through that for myself. And it worked out. I mean, back then, you know, you didn't have a cell phone with all these uh, numbers in the address book. So I had a legal pad. And every time I met people on a project or whatever, I wrote names and phone numbers down or addresses down and so I would cycle through that list you know every couple of months just to call up and say hey what are you doing I just wondered if uh, you had anything going on I've got a new cassette that's how long ago it was yeah. I'd like to send you and uh, you know so you, it's always even now it's a case of self-promotion I was in uh, Boston for three years uh, as chair of um, film scoring department there at Berkeley 2012 to 2015 and I've been back uh, in L.A. for three years, and I'm really having to promote myself again. Wow. Forgotten uh, already. Huh? I, I tell you what, maybe, Wow. they've got a short memory. When did we first talk? Do you even remember? I think it was the first Austin Powers suite that I did, which would have been in the late 90s, Must wasn't have it? Been. Must have been, or... Yeah, I don't remember. I don't think there was an event here, was there? I think I just must have, somebody must have said, hey, did you know that he's from here? And oh, he that. but then it was prior to that. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty the sweet. Yeah, we met before that. It okay. must have been Mortal Kombat or something, or maybe I saw I bet you it was. On a, um, Austin Powers. So it was the 90s for sure. Yes, it's been a long, mid, long time. Mid-90s maybe? 
we now have a mutual friend. I introduced you, I think, to Bob Bernhardt. Oh, yeah. Which uh, started a rela your relationship with the symphony. He's wonderful, here. yeah. I love Bob. Yeah. But so you've been very active yeah. with the symphony. Well, you know, it's interesting. It was the first place I heard an orchestra, this theater. My mother brought me here, you know, from, I guess we were living in, over, yeah, we were still in Brainerd. Brought me over here to hear a concert for the first time when I was maybe 10, 8, or 9, or 10. And I'll never forget it. The sound of an orchestra, the first time you hear it live, and especially here at the Tivoli, you know, every time I come back here, this, the little kid in me uh, looks around and says, can you believe this? Yeah, yeah, it's a magical place. Yeah, and I always hope that if there's some 10-year-old kid out there listening to something that I've got on stage, you know, maybe... Yeah, uh, 60 years from now, <laughs> they'll be interviewed and talk about it. What was that like? Um, because when you came back, was it the Austin Powers Suite that was the first time you performed here? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. That had to be pretty thrilling. It was, it work. was, yeah, it was great. In fact, uh, they had put uh, my name up on the marquee, and so I was driving my mother, who still lives here, we drove up and saw it out on the Tivoli, and I said, Mama, we made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's very, very cool. I, I actually sang, if you could call it that, on that stage in high school, our CYO. We used oh, really? to do our CYO show huh. uh, every year. It was like three shows. We did two matinees in wow. the evening, and so the whole makeup thing downstairs. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's terrific. And, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's my short little, you know, experience of what you're talking about. Which well, it, and it great. makes an impression, you know. That's Absolutely. one of the things about getting kids to concerts or having them involved in music always. <laughs> you know why I, got, I bought an organ after uh, the Velveteens, I was playing piano, and I uh, talked my dad into taking out a loan so I could get an organ. And there was a guy named uh, Al Miller who used yeah, to sure. have a story here. He was another one of those mentor guys. Yeah. I know, man. He used to let me borrow his truck uh, because I moved pianos uh, with uh, this guy named Cotton who worked there. I don't know yeah. if you knew, ever knew Cotton, but he was great. Anyway, he let me borrow the truck to take my organ to gigs. And the only reason I did that, the lead guitar reminded me, is so that I could be as loud as the lead guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> When did or did you shift mostly towards the soundtrack thing? Was there a moment where you said, I need to devote more of my time to this? Yeah, there was a time after, like I said, the Cheech and Chong thing when I started to having to kind of reinvent myself. Because up to then, I'd been pursuing a career as a singer-songwriter. And then the Cheech and Chong thing happened, and I thought, oh, I can do this. I love this. This has all the elements that I love, and you don't have to tour with a drummer. No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, drummers. But, uh, but the, um, the thing I realized soon was I'm going to have to do something to promote myself. So I started doing these TV movies, which were the big thing then. But back then... There was a real line drawn between film composers and TV composers. Now, you know, if you can get a thing on Netflix, right. great, that's wonderful. Right. But back then, if you did TV movies, the, the, the uh, film studios didn't want to talk to you because you were not a serious film composer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after a few years of doing these films, uh, um, made-for-TV movies, NBC specials and all this stuff, I had an agent, and I said to my agent, we're going to have to stop doing this, and you're going to have to promote me now for nothing but films. And he said, well, you know, that means you're not going to work for a while. And so for a year, I didn't work. I, it, took, it took about a year for, for people to start seeing me as... Uh, and the Cheech and Chong thing helped, because, you know, the, at least I had one film credit they recognized. But I think it wasn't until uh, Mortal Kombat that my career started changing in a way that made a big difference and people saw me as somebody that was uh, a film composer and somebody that had new ideas and a, and a different sound. I think one day soon, I hope, we'll do this again. I'll have you back and we'll talk about the, the process because watching that symposium with you was, was fascinating. Um, and we'll probably get into a lot of that with the, the concerto that we're getting ready to talk about. But, uh, I think that'd be a whole other good episode on Yeah, um, I'd love to do that. I, just talk about the process. Just the idea of going from blank piece of paper or blank 
computer screen yeah. or whatever to this finished exactly. piece. Um, the piece you talked about was with the Dwayne. Uh, oh, the John, Tooth Fairy. Tooth Fairy. Right. Piece and and how it went from zero to finished was mm. was really interesting. Cool. So in in that vein, then let's talk about the the piece uh, with Holly. How did that come up? Uh, and uh, talk about that process. The uh, I had never done a concerto before, and so Holly and I had met during one of those film music symposiums. The last one. Uh, they had asked her to come in and substitute as the uh, concertmaster because whoever it was couldn't make it. And we met, and she's a huge movie music fan, as it turns out. And we became friends. So over a year ago, about a year and a half, maybe less, um, I get a phone call from her. And uh, she said, would you be willing to write me a violin concerto? And... I didn't, you know, at first it didn't thrill me because I had never written one and, you know, I'm, I don't want to do something that's not going to be really, really good. And so um, she said, but I want it in the style of an epic film, Western film, Western movie. And I said, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> she got you. She got me. And so that's how it started. And because I'm a film composer, I realized that I can't just compose in the abstract. I need a story. That's yeah. what I've been trained to do. So I uh, started reading about these. Um, we knew we wanted it to be a female heroine. Uh, and uh, started reading these stories about these uh, uh, outlaws of the West, these women outlaws, which are very interesting stories. And so I composed a, um, I created uh, my own heroine called the Rose of Sonora. and made up this story about her. And so that's what I wrote to. And the, the concerto is called a concerto in five scenes because each one of the music from each one of these scenes tells the story of the Rose of Sonora. And prior, this is where it's really unique. Prior to each scene being performed by the orchestra and by Holly, there's going to be a text uh, projected above the orchestra describing each scene, describing the scene just before it's played, and then the orchestra will play the scene, there'll be no other images. And then the audience can create in their own minds the scene as it's happening. And the music will be able to inspire that. And so by the end of the last scene, every member of the audience will have created their own mental movie of the Rose of Sonora. Which, two things about Holly that to point out, I think she exemplifies, as you do, that whole we can do anything yeah. mentality. Thanks. Which I love. I do too. And uh, I did a podcast with her, one of the earlier ones I did, where she goes into the prisons. Oh, yeah. Uh, people are listening. If you like this, please go back and listen to that one because what she does, I think, is incredible. It's incredible. The arts, arts uh, what's it called? The arts. Uh, oh, it's her foundation. Yeah. Uh, she's, some is. Uh, Gosh, I, it's a good name. Anyway, yeah, she goes into prisons and takes composers in, and they play music, but yeah. they don't tell the, the, the prisoners what it's about, and then ask the prisoners to, to talk about how it made them feel. What they heard, yeah. What, what they heard. Make it, it's fascinating, yeah. and I can't get enough of just the whole idea of it, this, this idea that what you hear is what you hear, and that's correct. Exactly. So that's similar. I know from watching you with the, the Tooth Fairy, you 
you take the stills, or the not the stills, but the dailies that the studio would, would shoot, mm -hmm. and then you project it, and then you sort of start yeah. with the emotions, the thoughts, whatever. Mm -hmm. So in this one, yeah, kind of in your imagination. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Did you, yeah. Have, you had to come up with that storyline, though, before you had the first note? Is that how that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I told, told my wife, I said, you know, I've, I'm like a draft horse. You know, I've been a really good draft horse my whole life, you know, where you draw wagons. I get in that harness every day. I know I get out there and I get the job done. And I said, now it's like I've got this beautiful pasture I can run free in. <laughs> and every morning I'm standing by the gate waiting for the harness. Yeah. And there was no harness. And so what I had to get used to is the idea that, hey, I can just create freely and have it be a, an adventure for me. And it's strange to think that, you know, it's hard to do that, but if you've been programmed to create with huge deadlines facing you, they get shorter and shorter, you have to be right the first time. You don't have the luxury of, of taking the wrong turn. And so one of the great things about composing this was I could try things that I would never have time to try uh, in another kind of situation. That, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and for a lot of people that can brainlock. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, I remember hearing years ago when this whole idea of crating your dogs, and I know that's a, oh, yeah. I'm going off topic it sounds like, but it was explained to me that a dog has to know that the house is secure and has to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. and a dog that's able to run free spends its whole day running from one corner to the next. Oh, that's interesting. Trying to, you know, something's going on and he's, he's too nervous to rest. Oh, that's Whereas interesting. if he's in a crate, huh. he, he's comfortable. I was thinking you're not running in that field. Yeah, It'd be like, well, I get, let's go see what's in that corner. <laughs> That's right. Let's go to that corner. Let's exactly. go over here. Yeah, you never get started. So That's like, really true. That's really true. So I think the story, uh, like I said, it's a it's a way of framing the entire piece. And since we had an idea that we wanted it to be about a female uh, outlaw, and uh, and what happens is, I mean, it, first and foremost, it is a violin concerto, and it's hard. I mean, Holly is amazing. So she's virtuosic enough to be, a, whatever the word is, she's enough of a good player mm -hmm. to be able to, to really make this work. And we went back and forth about it, you know, let's try this, let's try that, because I'm not a violinist. But um, it's really, first and foremost, a, a concerto, and her playing in it is stunning. Yeah. Uh, and then... What it happens, though, is she becomes the voice of this character. Standing there in front of the orchestra, you see her playing, and suddenly she becomes the Rose of Sonora. And her, her, her instrument becomes the voice of this character. I, um, you sent me one of the pieces, and I'm, what I heard was very much those old Western films. Mm -hmm. My first thought was Peck and Paw, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. And then Good. I, I looked that up this morning, and, and uh, he has some music in it, but what I, first thing I read this morning was that he, he believed that the fight scene was music unto itself. Wow. So there, was, there was less of what you would do than the shooting and the punching and all wow. of that. So I'm going to have to go back and listen. But uh, That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I know. I like that. The, the, uh, the grunting and groaning and yeah. smacking of fists Becomes is its rhythm. own musical. Yeah. Yeah. But then... Um, Good, bad, the ugly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's homage to definitely to Ennio Marconi in this. You know, Holly. There's a thematic thing that Holly does. It goes, and it's an homage. It's not a ripoff, but it's an homage to the harmonica man in is it Once Upon a Time in the West? I think it is, where the what's his name Robertson character. Gosh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, there's this little harmonica note. He goes, you know, the harmonica. So there's little moments like that. There's a male chorus, and every now and, you're, every now and then they go, ho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's the one. Yeah. That's what made me think of Peck and Paul. And I couldn't tell you the film. Huh. I could be just merging, you know. Well, that's one of the great things about being able to write something in a particular style, because you can break down what are these stylistic elements. Right. And how do I want to reassemble them and make them unique for, for my use? And uh, that's, in fact, that's one of the great things about being a film composer, too, is because every film, 
usually has its own needs, you know, whether it's a period film that happens at a particular time and you want to be able to help people feel like that's where they are, or whether it's a horror film or a comedy or, you know, whatever it is, each film has its own needs. And that was certainly the case with this particular project. Uh, it, has it, it had its own needs, you know, and, uh, because of the requirements of it being a Western and a violin concerto. And That's one of the things that has fascinated me with symphonic music is how you can hear an instrument and it suddenly your spine tingles or you mm. smile or you're mm. scared or, yeah. you know, with a single note and all of that. I know. Bob Bernhardt and I have talked about that at length many, many times. And, and I, it's funny for... Me, you were talking about television. I, I give Bugs Bunny all the credit <laughs> for most of that. <laughs> the Barber of Seville. All of it, man. Yeah. Just the little, you know, uh, the um, just so much of it, and you don't even know it. I mean, that's the. Oh, I know. Of those, it's true. Those shows. Somebody said a highbrow somebody that can listen to the William Tell overture and not think of the Lone Ranger. <laughs> exactly. Of course. If, Young people won't know the Lone Ranger, so it doesn't make any difference. But, but that's exactly right. Having now done this, what do you think? Well, it's better than I even thought it was going to be. And I say it in all modesty. Um, it became something, I think, bigger than Holly and I realized that it was going to become because of the way we approached it. From the beginning, we wanted to make it a piece that would hopefully bridge the pop's world, concert world, and the classical concert world. Because today's orchestras, um, if they allow themselves, become museums. How many times can you go see the same painting? How many times can you go see the same sculpture? How many times can you go hear the same concerto, the same concert? It's beautiful. It's wonderful to see. And every now and then I love going back to the museum and seeing that painting or that sculpture. But the things I'm the most interested in when I go to a museum are the new exhibitions that are coming through. I've never seen these before. And I think that's, that's what needs to happen with uh, Masterworks. And I think Kayoko knows that here. Uh, I know that Sam and uh, Don, uh, the head of the board, and, and Samantha uh, Teeter, and um, everybody, uh, we had a board meeting this morning. And it was all about innovation and moving forward. And, and you know, everybody, it, it's a... It's a great place to want to be part of. I, I encourage people to become part of this. Right. Because today they found out, of all the orchestras in the United States, they are number two on the list of orchestras who play music by female composers. Now that is an amazing statistic. Nice. And people don't know that. Don't you know, know that. They just take it for granted. But there is, an, a, there is a concerted effort on, Bahar, on uh, by the symphony and by the people who are to move that forward and, and to, to have that change. Well, that's part of the things that, one of the things that Holly and I spoke about, she is very much a proponent, proponent of living composers. And I'm glad she is. And it's because of things like what you and I are doing. I can't yeah. have this conversation with a dead guy. <laughs> I mean, that seems obvious. So, well, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't wait till next year for me. <laughs> That's right. So let's hurry. Talk fast. <laughs> Both of us. No, it's such a difference. And that, that uh, program that she takes into the prisons yeah. is, she said, it's two part. One, she wants to promote living composers. And two, she wants them to get that feedback. Mm -hmm. And to, to watch that dialogue as I got to do was truly incredible. She wants me to, I think, come back and do it in September, so I hopefully you can go. It's, I will, absolutely. Yeah. One of the composers, or both of them actually, told her that they never get that. They yeah. submit their pieces and it's gone. Yeah. You know, they might see a review, if mm -hmm. they're lucky. Right. Um, but for the most part, it's gone. They don't go then and see them presented. Yeah. You know, and if they are, uh, for the most part, people are usually polite, so yeah. they, you know, great job. Right. They don't get the full feedback. Right. Uh, so particularly un, um, not filtered, but un, unencumbered. You know. Yeah. Normally, they would present it and tell the audience mm -hmm. their thinking. Exactly. So it's opposite of what. Yeah, Holly I does. think that's great. It was terrific. It it really changed a lot of the way I think about. That's, that's great. Art. Wow. Really. And she and I talked, and, and uh, I've written many, many times, 
I'm glad to hear you say that about the symphony, because the symphony and the hunter, which is our museum of fine mm -hmm. art, they have that, they have stigmas around yeah. them. They are intimidating for a lot of people. Uh, and so to, to have this new way of thinking, what you see in that art piece is your opinion and it's right. Yeah. What you hear in that musical piece yeah. is yours and it's right. It's right, exactly. Uh, is a whole different way. Uh, and I, I think it just makes it uh, a lot more accessible for people. I hope so. I hope there's um, enough of a, a younger generation coming uh, into uh, their own now that is interested in this art form and interested in keeping it vibrant and alive and moving forward. You know, um, a lot of the older blue-haired uh, audience and uh, donors are dying off. And, um, and so now is a real opportunity to become a part of it and to help shape it and, um, you know, make it into something even more exciting uh, than it already is. Everything is possible. Everything is possible. It's pretty much that simple. Um, the concerto, it's April 21st. Right? 25th. 25th. April 25th at the Tivoli. I, I hope people will plan to come and see it. I hope they will look up your... Yeah. Um, I will link um, your resume and some Great. movies and all that. It's, I think it'd be fun for people to now say, I've heard that guy. I didn't know he wrote that. It's, that'd be good. I'd like that. Because film scores, to me, are one of those things that just, before I knew, seemed like they just appear. You know? yeah. They're just one of those things that yeah. come with the movie. I know. The I had, had to write it. I had an uncle who asked me once, George, where do you get the music? <laughs> I said, well, I, I create it. You make it up? Yeah. I said, yeah, I make it up for each movie. Where do you get the music? So um, I wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, one, there is a website, therosofsonora.com, and we also have a Facebook page, and right. you can stay in, um, uh, in touch with what's happening with it because we have another concert that's already been booked for uh, spring of 2020 in Wichita, nice. and there's an orchestra in Texas that's you know, interested in having it, and... What we're trying to do is promote it the way you promote a movie. We did a teaser here uh, last uh, spring, which was a trailer, a three-minute version of this of this uh, concerto, uh, like a movie trailer. And we added it as a surprise before intermission to the concert nice. so that the audience would have a taste of what is coming right. in, the, in the next. And we did that in Wichita, too. So it's a, it's a kind of a different way of promoting it, trying to get people interested in it before it happens. Do you want to do more of this? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I feel like, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a new door for me, a new chapter for me. I'm, I'm scoring less films, but then suddenly there's this, you know, uh, other nice. door that shows up. Nice. I believe you don't see the doors unless you're ready for them. I pretty much told my coworker that I'm that guy that runs into the room with all these open doors and say, are we trying to heat the entire outside? <laughs> and I slam them all shut. <laughs> <laughs> that seems, seems to have been my M.O. all the years. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, I thought about that the other night. I thought, man, I have had some really great opportunities. <laughs> I slammed every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't teach them. Yeah, trying to heat the whole outdoors. That's good. Anything else that you wanted to mention that I didn't ask about? Like I said, I, I really hope we'll do this again. Well, I think it's great you're doing this, you know, the it. podcast and stuff. I think what it takes to keep art alive is people who are enthusiastic about it and willing to make the effort to keep it alive. And that's what you're doing. And I have, whether you're an artist, whether you're a journalist, whatever it is, if you are enthusiastic and passionate about it, then you're breathing your own life into it. And this, they can do that as an audience. They can help breathe life into it by coming in uh, and promoting uh, the symphony. I I don't know if it's older age or, or what, but I just, I, ne I more and more appreciate how art helps all of us heal, communicate, educate, feel better. You know, I think so much of it we don't even know it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so in talking with the, all the arts organizations, um, Dan Bauer, who, who's soon will retire from Artsfield, said something to me once, people hear arts, 
mm. and it intimidates mm. a certain group. That's true. They hear the arts and they right. think museum pieces and symphonies. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that art helped design the light switch when you walk into a room or your tennis shoes or yeah. your clothes, you know. Good point. Yeah, I, ne I had never thought of it that way. And um, anyway, again, another topic, it hurts me to hear it being pulled from schools and all that when it so clearly yeah. makes a difference for kids who have it. It's very like true. You. Yeah. Well, if you was, had that teacher, what would you be doing? Well, there's a guy named uh, Michael Kamen, who uh, is a composer. He's dead now, but he composed Mr. Holland's Opus. Mm. Remember that? Sure. Uh, he took all the royalties and fee he got from that and started this organization called Mr. Holland's Opus Fund. And they provide instruments to school districts that don't have the money to provide instruments for their kids. There's that. There's education through music, uh, which is a national program uh, that provides uh, music training you know, to try to reinstate some of that music right. uh, possibility within an arts possibility within the schools. But you're right. I mean, the, the world would be a lot less full of uh, music and art and dance and, you know, writing and whatever had there not been programs in place in high school. It's not just that. The thing that Holly, the, the prisoners, to hear them say, I didn't know, number one, that I had feelings. Mm. I didn't know that someone would consider my feelings. Mm. I didn't know that I could talk to a person about my feelings rather than punch them in the face straight mm. away. You know, mm. I didn't know that was an option. I mean, we literally said wow. those kinds of things. Wow. Uh, that's what I mean. And so for when you hear studies say that kids who have arts you know, learn to communicate better. That's that's yeah. the kind of thing that they, they learn problem solving and resolution and that there's options other than, you know, go write a poem, write down your feelings, share mm. them, write a mm. song rather than violence or whatever. So, mm. um, George, we could do this all day long. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And for doing this. Sure. And we will do it again, I hope. I'd love to. Very, very soon. Thanks, Barry. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Adios. People are strange. People get ready. People.